Please turn in uh, your copy of God's Word or the Black Pew Bible there in front of you, our text this morning, Luke chapter 19. In that Black Pew Bible, you'll want the Bible open. It's page 878 is where we're looking, those first 10 verses. We're in a series uh, in the Gospel according to Luke where we are discovering and unpacking uh, some of these encounters that Jesus has on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, so we're, we're, we're culminating at the close of this gospel. Uh, these encounters, sometimes it includes people that we would anticipate and others that we wouldn't. People who are, are not so eager to see Jesus and people who are definitely eager uh, to meet him. Uh, he has helped out and encountered helpless and vulnerable people. Uh, even as we uh, discussed in the previous chapter, Jesus in uh, Luke 18 talks about the children. Let them come to me. For such is the kingdom of God. You need a childlike faith. He helps a widow who is uh, persistent uh, in prayer. We see Jesus encounter a ruler, a, a persuasive and intelligent uh, man who is morally and materially wealthy. Uh, but that doesn't, uh, that doesn't make him anything in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, I want you to sell everything. And he's unable to do that. Uh, we see uh, he's sad because he had a pile of money that he... Uh, maybe someday we hope or realize it wasn't loving him back, but he was loving that and it got in the way of following Jesus. Last week, we see that Jesus is about to enter the city of Jericho and he hears a man crying, uh, you know, screaming out, uh, son of uh, son of David, have mercy on me. He's saying, you're the king and I, I need mercy. The man was a blind beggar and Jesus I heard him. He didn't care what anyone in the crowd said or thought of him. He just kept screaming over top of them. He couldn't see Jesus, but Jesus heard his voice. And what he was met with was just that, the mercy of God. Now we see Jesus. Uh, that was a, a blind beggar. Now we see Jesus has made his way now into. That was just outside of Jericho. Now he's in Jericho. And Luke records for us another man who has a vision problem. Uh, we see a man, uh, we're going to meet a man here where uh, he, he has a vision problem for a whole host of, of, of reasons, totally different. Uh, he doesn't need to beg because he's got plenty of money, but he can't see because he's short. All right, who wants to guess what we're reading about this morning? The wee little man, Zacchaeus. I know you just sat down. Why don't you stand again in deference to God's word, please, with me. Hear this. Luke 19, begin with me in verse 1. It's only Luke out of the four Gospels who records this uh, for reasons uh, we don't exactly know. But this is significant. This is the last personal encounter that he records before Jesus does make his way into Jerusalem and his passion. He, that is Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. And he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and he came down and received him joyfully. And when he saw it, when they saw it, they all grumbled. He is gone. He's gone to be with the guest of a man as a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today, today salvation has come to this house, 
since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is God's word. Thanks be to him. You may be seated. Would you join me, though, in prayer? Uh, this, is, uh, this is not a passive thing that we're about to enter into. This is an active reality when the preaching of God's word goes out, that we ask God's help, that we might hear his voice right now uniquely. Father, please, would you give us worshipful hearts? Would you give us humble hearts that are ready, that are eager to hear and respond and receive the good news, to repent, to experience renewal, revival in our souls, our lives? Make us different, please, on account of hearing your voice. Make us more like Jesus, for we pray in his name. Amen. It was Billy Graham, uh, the great preacher, who once said, That Jesus did not consult any public opinion polls when he decided to go about his work and his ministry. Isn't that the truth? Jesus didn't consult. Jesus did not take a public opinion poll and decide where he would go. And that is certainly, undoubtedly the truth when it came to this day in Jericho. And the reason that I highlight that is although children and and many people love the story of Zacchaeus and almost feel like you're ready to go give Zacchaeus a a high five someday. uh, Look, this is a man who was deeply, deeply despised. Uh, This is the last person that people would have anticipated Jesus wanted to interact with that day, let alone call him by name and spend time with him at his house. This is a man who was repulsed. We we remember, and and verse 2 makes it even worse because he's not just a tax collector like others like Levi. He is a chief amongst them. He's at the top of a pyramid scheme uh, that is, is, is horrible for people because if you'll recall, even as we talked about Earlier, the the tax collector whose heart was right with God in the previous chapter in Luke 18, we see here with uh, with Zacchaeus, we're reminded that the Romans are the ones who occupy Palestine. And so they're they're there and they are uh, collecting their taxes uh, as they govern, as they rule. So there's this oppression. There's this this need to, to offer up their, their, their taxes. In a city like Jericho, where there's you know, bustling commerce and, and trade and customs and goods coming in, that needed to be taxed as well. And of course, uh, you know, that's a subjective thing. What's the value? You know, the valuation on your goods, that tax collector could say, well, today I think it's, it's this much. And so the tax, here it is. And he is supposed to go and collect uh, these, you know, these, these taxes. Now, it was advantageous for the Romans from time to time to conscript some of their own, some of the Jews. And that's who Zacchaeus was. Zacchaeus was a, uh, was a, uh, a descendant of Abraham, a Jew. And uh, he was used to go and, and leverage that and to, to, to get into homes and to relationships and to know people so that he could, of course, collect taxes and take his extra cut. So he is wealthy. We know he owns a home. Uh, we, we, it's even told, even explicitly, Luke records it, that he was not only a chief, chief tax collector, he had plenty of money in his pockets. Do you know what the name Zacchaeus means? It doesn't mean short. Uh, it means, it's a Hebrew word that means pure or innocent. So you can imagine the, the parents of Zacchaeus one day when they named him had dreams and visions that he would be a man of righteousness. I'm sure that there were occasions that he being so hated as that chief tax collector that people said, oh, look there. Here comes Zacchaeus, you know, pure Zacchaeus, you you pure traitor. 
Yeah, this, is, this is, I'm sure, an opportunity for people to, to mock him. The text tells us Zacchaeus owned a home, was rich. All that to say, if he's a tax collector, it translates into, I've got no friends. Zacchaeus would not, he would, have been, he would have been wealthy, but he would have been an outcast. He would have been lonely, even amongst his own people. He would have been considered a traitor and an outcast. So the people's response, of course, when Jesus wants to hang out with him uh, is verse 7. Here in our text, it's, it's grumbling. They're, they're, they're confused. They're, they're critical. They're complaining. And, uh, and they're complaining and they're uh, their commentary on who Jesus is and what he's doing is, is bickering on their part, but it's good news on ours. Why? Because they're saying, here is a man who is a friend, a guest of sinners. And that's good news for us, that Jesus did make a beeline in God's sovereign design and plan and went straight to that tree where Zacchaeus was and then to his house. Salvation is at work. The good news is unfolding. Salvation is at work. Who is at work and what is at work? Well, it's not the commendable curiosity and the boldness of Zacchaeus as he climbs up in that tree. It's the good news of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit working together. And what we see here is the beginning of a cycle that happens when uh, a convert is made. Uh, this is, of course, an unlikely convert, we would say. That he wasn't a generally good guy. But he, had, he was marked and he was pursued by the good shepherd here. It's true that all converts, have you been converted to follow Christ? If so, I think what we see here is the cycle that we see when the good news of that gospel enters a person's life. There's three things that happen. There's a call. There's a change and there's a commission. I listed right there. The gospel calls, the gospel changes, and that good news gospel commissions people. That's our outline. The gospel calls, all this past week, we, uh, uh, I've been looking at our van. Um, it's not that old of a van. It's got over 100,000 miles, but it, it, it turned like this nasty color over the last couple of weeks going skiing up in New Hampshire and Vermont. It looks horrible. And so we decided, hey, you know what, why don't we zip it through? I, I'd already turned off the hose at the house, you know, to prevent from freezing. Not that that was going to happen this winter, uh, but we, we didn't have the hose on. So I said, well, let's swing by the car wash. We go to the car wash, we get in line and uh, and we get to the sign. And uh, we, we I said, well, just go on. We'll figure it out. Well, of course, you needed to read the sign to see what's the difference between the, you know, the sponge bath and the, you know, the spa bath premium or whatever. Well, we couldn't even read it. I'm like, I don't even know the difference. Just get the basic one, I guess. But I couldn't even read the sign uh, to figure it out because lo and behold, I had to roll down the window and finally read the sign. This is why we're here. We're here because we need this, uh, this problem uh, remedied. Little does Zacchaeus know that his problem uh, that he's blind in ways that he doesn't even know, and he's about to be changed in ways he couldn't ever conceive upon looking for Jesus. Zacchaeus can't see. And some would say it was curiosity that prompted him to climb that tree. I don't know. I mean, obviously, there was some element of that. I mean, maybe it was a vain curiosity. Maybe, maybe there's, you know, who knows? I, I, I don't. But he found himself in that tree because of God. God's love. I think it was humility that God had stirred in his heart because at that point he didn't care. He didn't care. I don't care what I look like climbing up in this tree. I need to see this Jesus. 
I'm going to put my eyes on this famous prophet that I've heard uh, so much about, the buzz around him. It must have been shocking. Zacchaeus just about fell out of the tree probably when, you know, when Jesus looked up and called him by name. He doesn't say, hey, you, what are you doing? You come down. He says, Zacchaeus. There's something profound there, right? I think that that's all purposeful. If, as Luke records it, Jesus is intentional. Jesus is personal. Jesus is going to have an intimate conversation with this man in his home. He wants to share a meal. It's remarkable. The infinite and holy God of the universe who created us out of nothing by the power of his word enters into our lives, our world. And the flesh, Jesus. But then to go even further that he personalizes it, that he calls people by name. It's deeply personalized. It's that, that way all along. Abraham, Abraham. He calls out, he calls out to to Jacob by name, to Moses by name, to Samuel by name, to King David by name. The prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all of them. God calls them by name. And that doesn't change in the New Testament. Even those fishermen, right? He calls all of them. He reaches out. He says to James and Andrew and Peter and Simon. Matthew as well, another scandalous tax collector. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Talk about another unlikely and dramatic conversion. If you need illustrations of it, I didn't pick any of them this week. We didn't need any examples of unlikely conversions. It's right here in the text. And then it spills over into other examples. Even back to the Garden of Eden with our parents in their, in, in their rejection of God's love and wisdom and law. When they know that they've fallen into sin and they're ashamed and they hide themselves, what happens? What happens? God comes in and re enters the garden. And he says, Adam, Adam, where are you? And I want to say to that, as if, as if he doesn't know where they are, he does. But it's God, the God, the personal God who pursues with all intentionality and compassion and wisdom and care that he comes after Adam and Eve. Jesus, the good shepherd in John. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one can snatch them out of my hand. Amen. Grace. It's grace and grace alone that's calling the gospel message Zacchaeus. It may have been boldness or vanity or curiosity that got him up in that tree, but it was surely grace that called him out. He jumps down. We read there uh, joyfully. The old uh, 19th century evangelist D.L. Moody used to say it was somewhere between that limb and the ground that Zacchaeus was converted. <laughs> and uh, I, I, it's, it would have been remarkable to see it. Who is seeking who, though? Not in his life, your life. Who's seeking who? Did you find God or did God find you? And I'm not trying to get into an exercise in philosophy. That you, you, they're, 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 we don't need to go into uh, speculation. The Bible is not ambiguous about this. It might be mysterious, but it's not ambiguous 
that it is so explicitly clear that no one seeks God. Not one. Romans 3. Jesus makes it clear. He came. Look at the verse. Verse 10. Here's his mission. He came to seek and to save the lost. It's clear elsewhere that John makes it, you know, in John, he records it, that Jesus makes clear. No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. What do you think he means? It, well, but what does he mean when he says it again? In John 6, further down, 65, verse 65, no one can come to me, Jesus says, unless it has been granted to him by the father. Charles Spurgeon, great British preacher, once said, Christ does not leave it to ourselves to seek him or else it would be left indeed. For so vile is human nature and although heaven could be offered and though hell thunders in our ears, yet there was there never was and there never will be any man unconstrained by sovereign grace will run into the way of salvation and so escape from hell and flee to heaven. Thus, if you are seeking God today, you can know that it is only because of the Savior's kindness and taking the initiative to seek you and me first. It's beautiful to me to contemplate that there's no one outside the scope of God's sovereign grace. There's no one that we would say is too, we may say, we, no, we, 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 we estimate, oh, well, they're just so close to the kingdom. They're just such a, a sweet person. They're just so responsible. I, I, I'd love to have them as a neighbor. That's the Pharisee sometimes. It doesn't matter. It, it's, you say, oh, but that person, they'll never come to church. How do you know you haven't invited them? How do, you, how do we go about estimating that some are near and some are far? That's the Lord's, that's the Lord's business. And how dare they stand there and say, what is Jesus doing with our chief tax collector? They don't know Jesus. This was a man who was disgraced. He lived a scandalous life. But it would, it would remind us that we should have humility. That's the reason that we call it amazing grace. It's, it's, it's amazing It's amazing that God would take people who are far and bring them near. But some who we think are near are not. Some who are far are near. I said it a number of weeks ago when we talked about the difference, right? In in chapter 18 where there's there's the Pharisee, the tax collector. Again, another one of those... You know, good guy, bad guy. And the good guy stands before the Lord in the, in the presumption of his prayer and says, I thank you that I'm not like this guy. And we talked about it that week. The principle of humility, this was two weeks ago, we said the only thing worse than being an addict or a, a tax collector or, um, you know, this scandalous sinner in some, you know, some fashion is to be proud that we're not one of them. Have you written people off? I've presumed things about others. I've presumed things about myself. I'm in my own capacity to see my worthiness and others' unworthiness. I'm so glad that grace and mercy has overridden that. When you find someone is coming to your house, 
you find out, you know, so-and-so's coming over today, or they, or no, we just found out they're on the phone. They're, 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 uh, they're at the Logan Airport. They need to be picked up. Well, we got to pick up some stuff before we pick them up. I mean, this is, this is a mess. This is a disaster. I mean, if you came to our house, it's just like a, our dining room table, which can seat 10 people, has just got a bunch of laundry on it. Uh, it it's, it's, it's a little bit uncomfortable sometimes. You know what it's like. You're like, I hope they're late. Because, I, I, man, this is a I, What is he thinking? Jesus is coming to my house. This guy knows my name. I didn't tell him my name. He knows I have a house, and he's coming there. What, wait, wait. What else does this guy know about me? <laughs> you, you, you just wonder if you were to enter into his shoes and his thinking at that point. Man, what am I going to serve? You? What are we going to do? What are we going to talk about? What does he know? I bet you he knows everything. And that. Oh, yeah. By the way, nobody knows everything about you. Not even you. Not even me. Jesus knows everything. And for Zacchaeus, that's not a nightmare. That's freedom. That's good news for him. We don't know what took place in their conversation over a meal that day. There's some personal details. I'm sure. There's something that happened somewhere between, look at our text, verse 7 and verse 8. They're all saying, I can't believe they're grumbling. He's gone to have a guest of a man who is a sinner. And then it says Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, I'm going to make it right. I, I, we don't even know that Jesus said anything to him about sin at all. He just stood and said, this is the day. You know, I, I, all of this, I'm turning. I'm leaving it. I'm going in a new way. I'm going in a new direction. I'm following you. That's where we get to this point. The gospel not only calls people, the gospel changes people. The gospel changes people. Our next heading here, Jesus is barged into this man's house. He's barged in. He was, he was not invited. Doesn't matter. He says, I'm coming to your house. I'm coming to your life. I'm coming to your priorities. I'm coming to your heart. And I'm coming after your finances. And it's, free. it's, it's freedom. Zacchaeus is overwhelmed, but I don't think... There was any pain or loss. I think that Zacchaeus's, all of his, his desires were changed. His heart was shifted. Can you imagine the look on people's faces? When he decided, verse 8. Look, 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 look what he's decided. He, he has rendered this as his response. A changed man, verse 8. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, by the way, we've all heard, of, we've all heard a, a whole host of false apologies where someone says, if I've offended anyone, then I'm sorry. Meaning, no, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying if I've defrauded someone. The, the, the nature of the, of, of the verbiage here in the original is that he's confident and he knows there's a long list of people he intends to pay back. He doesn't even want the money anymore. He's so glad to meet Jesus. It's going freely and he is going to restore it above and beyond. He acknowledges his guilt. Zacchaeus is bearing what we would call the fruit of Repentance, not, 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 not embarrassment and guilt and remorse, but the fruit of the gift that God had given him in repentance and faith. 
One Bible teacher, Gavin Childress, put it this way. The subsequent events show that his heart, that is Zacchaeus, was truly changed that day. He was determined to serve the Lord from that moment. He was not just going to follow an honest course, but he would make restitution for the wrongs he had done. He gave to the poor, restored what he had taken, far from boasting his words, which is verse 8, when he says, if I've defrauded anyone, is an admission of guilt and a sign of deep humility before God. For many today, trust in Jesus is simply about wiping the slate clean and being forgiven. Yet it's also about restitution. We must restore all we have stolen and make peace with those whom we may have hurt. That's, that's a heart change, right? It says, I think they know. No, maybe they don't. And maybe, maybe you need to go and make some things to the best of your ability, right? Not to get God to notice you, to get God to love you, because nothing is suggested here that Zacchaeus did that so that salvation would come to his house. He did it because it had. He had. The gospel, Jesus, had come to his house. And he knows that the response is this. It's surrender and repentance and turning. It changed him. This is a God-initiated salvation as he was saved from sin, just like you and me, if we're united to Christ, but we're also saved not only from something, we are saved to something. We, we are his workmanship created in Christ, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, for good works that he has prepared for us to walk in. That's what Zacchaeus was to do. By the way, genuine faith is not the absence of any doubt going forward. I'm sure he had some of those. Because our faith doesn't save us. God does. The object of our faith. There is one other unlikely convert that came to mind this week when I was thinking about that cost, the calling and the cost, and then to, be, to, to go and to, to work for that kingdom in commission with Jesus. Is the Old Testament Gentile prostitute Rahab. I encourage you, if you want to see a powerful example of a life changed, go back and read Joshua 2 this afternoon. We learn that Rahab's faith is genuine. She trusts God. She is trusting God with all the implications of what it means if she were to turn from her own people to embrace the God of Israel. True faith shows up in new desires, new priorities and deeds and actions. A living faith, a saving faith is by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. As many Bible teachers put it, that's not, it's, that's not an ism that I came up with. But here's my question. Is that true for you? Has the gospel begun a change in you? Not flawlessly, not perfectly, but intentionally. Choices and patterns, risks that you would take because you trust God. I don't know the outcome, God, but I'm going to take this step of faith and I trust you with the details of it because you're worthy and you're worth it. This was costly to Zacchaeus, right? He may have had to liquidate his assets and sell his home to make good on what he promised Jesus that he would do that day. We don't know. But this rich ruler, the rich ruler did care. (laughs) Zacchaeus did not. Jesus said, sell it all to the rich man. He says, I can't. Zacchaeus said, I'm glad to do it without even bringing it up. The rich rich young ruler in the previous chapter was called to sell everything. 
And I mentioned it then, and I'll reintroduce it again. That's not what he's called everyone to do. He was just trying to aim at the, the rich young ruler's heart. But whatever it is that he wants in your life, it's not something, it's everything. And sometimes he calls us for something in particular to reveal that he doesn't have our everything. So my, my question, and I'm not even talking about money right now, but my question a couple of weeks ago, and it is again here, is that have you given, have you given up anything for Jesus? Is there things, are there things that you, anything that you're currently doing or perhaps foregoing, not doing or prioritizing simply out of your love for Jesus? Can you point to anything that is solely in your life because you were a follower of Christ? Well, thanks be to him. I know it is because I see a lot of your lives. There are things. If you're here today, though, and I, and I want to say this, and you're not yet a follower of Christ, verse 9 is, you, is your message. Today is the day of salvation. Don't, don't assume. None of us, not a single one of us is promised tomorrow. There is an urgency to the gospel call. And Jesus is laying it here. Come, follow him. He's worth it. The gospel will call us and it will change us. And then it'll do something else. So don't, I mean, the costliness is there. And I, I'm not trying to minimize that in any way, shape or form. It costs Zacchaeus greatly to be a friend of Jesus. But the alternative is to not be a friend of Jesus and a follower. And that rejection is far worse than to embrace him. So the gospel calls and the gospel changes, but the gospel also commissions us. Luke records this last verse. Let me read it again. Four. He's, he's, he's rejoicing that this man, Zacchaeus, who is part of the nation of Israel, has now been restored into right fellowship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he says this, verse 10, for the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. This is Jesus his personal mission statement. Jesus' main goal here, bold print, right as, even before he goes into Jerusalem, is to seek and save the lost. We are not saved. Zacchaeus was not saved by his good works. But that's not to say that we weren't saved by good works. We were, we are. Jesus' good works. His blood shed on the cross and that we would respond to that in gratitude. Jesus died that we might live. Jesus became poor that we might know the riches of God. Jesus was estranged and alienated from the holiness of God and the praise of heaven that we might taste and see and be reconciled to the Father. Now, I don't have a whole lot to say in this, but I do think that this account shows us that to befriend Jesus, to encounter Jesus is, 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 a, is a very, very personal matter in one sense. But don't be mistaken into thinking that it's a private one. And there wasn't anybody in Jericho that doubted that when he started showing up at their door saying, I found Jesus and here's your money. You know what I mean? There's some people that, they were, I'm, I'm ready to give Jesus a second look. That's pretty cool. It, it was not private. And it's not for us either. Because look, to be united to Christ by faith, the good shepherd calls us by name. He lays down his life for his sheep. And then 
We follow Him. And we follow Him out of sin and into light and on to mission. His mission is our mission because we are known as the body of Christ. He being the head. We His hands and feet. The body of Christ. Galatians 2. I've been crucified, Paul says, with Christ. I, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Jesus gave himself to this mission of seeking and saving the lost, and he's still doing that. And we're part of that. We are the ones who have the privilege, not just the responsibility, duty, and burden, but the privilege of being his ambassadors and witnesses. Here's an application point that just came to me. This week, you need to go and listen to the Grace Unfolding podcast. Right, Jonathan? Because we had, a, we had the beginning of a conversation about what does it look like, sound like, smell like to share our faith with other people. I love doing that. And some of you need to learn how to love doing that because it is joy. It's challenging. And if you've got questions about that and doubts and concerns, we're going to try to unpack that. So send in your questions. We're going to do it like two, three weeks where we're going to have you know, a dialogue about what does that look like? Why would we do it? Why would we, why, what hinders us? What does it look like for us to be on mission with Jesus who sends us out and to experience the joy? John 20, Jesus says, peace be with you. Prior to his ascension, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so, Jesus says, I am sending you. What was he sent to do? Verse 10. Let's say it together. Everybody look down at verse 10. I'm going to make this even more participatory than you wanted. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. What's my mission? To seek and save the lost. Philemon 6. This is for our good. This is for our joy. Philemon 6, 6 says, I pray that you will be active in sharing your faith so that you'll be miserable and rejected. Now, you might, be, you might be rejected, okay? I can testify to that. But you, you're not going to be miserable. This is what he says. I pray that you may be active sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, says, Zacchaeus obtained vastly more than he had Expected. Well, that's an understatement. I suspect some of you could say the same. And this is a very personal God who, who knows us by name. That, that, that's, and then he says, oh yeah, we're coming to, we're, I want to have a meal with you today. And that's where we're going. We're going to a meal where we're going to commune with Almighty God. It's okay to smile. That we would taste and see that the Lord is good. We would testify that surely goodness and mercy has followed us all the days of our life. And we can celebrate because we have a Savior. He's called us. He's changed us. He's changing us. He's working. Thanks be to him. Let's prepare by prayer. Lord, would you please grant to us a humility that doesn't care about what other people think. That runs after you that responds to your grace, 
Please, would you help us to exercise a faith that's sacrificial and generous and joyful? Would you help us, Lord, to be a humble people who love and care about others without prejudice? I pray that you'd help people to locate the areas where they need more surrender. For me, Lord, we might die to it and bury it and walk away. Help us to be a people who care about the virtues of the king and the kingdom because we've experienced his love. He told us, blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are the meek. Would you transform us to be more like that? And Father, we do pray as we think about the world and our community, our families, we think about people who are struggling even this very day in places like Turkey and Syria as they seek to rebuild and grieve and mourn. Shower mercy. Would you please use your church and others to minister? Thank you, God, for the leadership in our country. That's part of what you've appointed for us, and we are called to pray, and we do, Lord. We pray for our president and his cabinet. We pray for Congress. We pray for the Supreme Court, all the courts of our country, that you, Lord, would use them to restrain evil. Would you give them humility and wisdom that is from above to all of our leaders, Lord. I pray you'd bless our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world where there's severe persecution, there's far less freedom, and there's even suffering. I pray, God, that you'd be pleased today to protect your church on the South Shore, our church, the purity, the peace, the unity of your church. And for others, Lord, other churches where Christ is preached, I pray especially this morning for West Bridgewater Community Church. I I pray for for First Baptist and Situate. Lord, you would bless both of these churches, their leadership. You keep them unified and on mission. Would you encourage, Lord, our missionaries who serve cross-culturally? They know the price. They know the worthiness of Jesus. I pray you would comfort and encourage them and cause, Lord, the work that Colin and Zuri have in West Africa to bear fruit as they seek to reach students on a Muslim college campus. Lord, I pray with you be with those who grapple with grief today. Encourage those who are ill and sick, some who can't even be here. But I do pray for Michael and Edith. I thank you, God, for their presence with us for several months and the refreshment that's been to us. I ask that you'd go ahead of them as they move to Central Mass, that you would prepare the way, that you'd give them friends, that you would give them uh, divine opportunities and appointments, especially, Lord, we pray that you would find, help them find a new church. I thank you that it's such a big priority to them to find a local church and pour into it. Thank you for that example. I pray you'd bless them because of their faith. Lord, bless us, Lord, not on account of our words or our actions or intentions, but solely on, the, on, on account of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray and together saying, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom 